Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode nine of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Today, Travis and I take an in-depth look at the widespread belief that we store emotions in our hips or that we store emotions in our body in general. Is this claim accurate? What's the explanation for why and how emotions are stored in our hips or in our body? And does this explanation hold up to scrutiny? We also talk about the common practice of treating the psoas muscle as a magic muscle, and we chat about hip openers in yoga and what their connection to emotion might be. In this episode, we also take a look at the well-known recovered memory therapy movement that took place in the 1980s and 90s, and we explore what lessons and insights that time period has to offer us today as the belief in repressed memories may be growing in popularity again. We also talk about the terms tight and release, as in we release emotions from our hips when we practice hip openers, and we examine the definition of these terms. We touch on a bit about stretching science, and we also look at self-myofascial release and what an evidence-based approach to this practice might look like. There's a ton more in this episode too, and we think you'll really enjoy this conversation. If you happen to be a member on my website, jennyrawlings.com, just know that you can also actually watch the video version of this podcast as a bonus feature of your membership. So if you prefer to listen via audio, that's great. And you can just listen right here. But if you'd like to actually see Travis and I talk face-to-face as we have this conversation, feel free to do so over on my website. And now without further ado, here's our episode. Welcome to our episode today. Our topic of focus is on do we store emotions in our hips? Is that is that a thing that happens? It tends to be a relatively common claim in the yoga world. And we're just here to take a closer look at that and maybe look at some of the science behind that claim and some of the prevalent beliefs about that claim in the yoga and the movement world. And if you perchance have not heard this claim before that we store emotions in our hips, I'll just throw out there that I did put up or we did put up a poll to my social media audience And we asked them, uh, have you heard the claim or have you heard the claim that we store emotions in our hips? And 90% said that they have heard that claim. So nine, that's kind of a lot. That's uh, rounds up to a hundred percent, but of course it's not everybody, but that's a huge majority of at least my audience. And then we followed that up with a second question, which is, uh, do you believe that we store emotions in our hips. So the first was, have you heard? And 90% said they'd heard. The second question was, do you believe that we store emotions in our hips? And for that, 45% said yes, they believe it. And 55% 
said no, they don't believe the claim. And I will throw out there that I, I know my social media audience might be a little biased toward being a little more interested in science. Uh, and so that might be a slightly biased split, like perhaps in the in, the, in a wider pull of, of a more general yoga audience, those numbers might be slightly different. But I remember when I talked to you, Travis, about maybe doing a podcast on this topic, had you heard this claim before that we store emotions in our hips? Yeah, I had heard it. Um, uh, it's certainly out there. And uh, when you first proposed the topic, I thought, mm -hmm. how are you going to talk about that? Because that's ridiculous. Well, you did say that. Yeah. But then... <laughs> Sorry, mm -hmm. sorry to the people no, that okay. said yes. But then <laughs> almost half of your audience said, yes, I believe that mm -hmm. emotions are stored in the hips. So that got me to be thinking, well, do we store emotions in the hips? Am I mm -hmm. being short-sighted and uh, narrow-minded about this? And so, you know, I, I asked, could you, could you help me understand where this belief comes from? And mm -hmm. is there any truth to it? Mm-hmm. I love and, how open um, you are. Like you don't want to just like shoot it down because it doesn't I, sound right. If, if emotions are stored in the hips, I want to know. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to tell people that they're not if Me they too. are. And, yes, totally, and, and so, totally. so my, my thought process was twofold. Are emotions stored in their hips? Okay. If, if they are, let's find out. And if they're not, well, why do so many people mm -hmm. believe that? Where's that belief mm -hmm. coming from? And is there any scientific grain of truth to it mm -hmm. like what like where why why is this why do people believe this where is it coming from let's just mm -hmm. get to the bottom of it i like that i like that approach to to this episode in general and so to kind of to kind of prepare really both of us to talk about this a little bit more, talk about where the idea comes from. I did a little uh, Googling research and I shared some links with you and we tried to kind of hone in on what the explanations are out there for how and why, for when people say we do store emotions in our hips, what the explanations are for why and how. And um, like, what did, what did you learn from, from that? I was disappointed. From the articles I sent you. <laughs> so, do you remember so, what some of the, yeah, like, what well, that explanation? There was a lot of so as this and mm -hmm. shocker that, <laughs> but the the, the, the the articles were basically talking about just kind of, they said emotions are stored in the hips and they never really explained why, but then they said, and here are some stretches Hip that we stretches. can do to, yeah, to release That's those exactly emotions. It. And it just left me wondering, well, where like what who who said this originally and mm -hmm. what were the were grounds for saying it and like me there were a few scientific studies that were referenced in the last few years and i pulled them up and they didn't say what the people who were referencing them said that they said mm. <laughs> it was just like oh well we're gonna cite some re we're gonna put some research in here put some pubmed links and make it seem like this is science-based right but, but when you actually a, look at that 
bastardization what of what those articles even totally looked at. Totally not like relevant to their points and not, not supporting yeah. what they were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the so, so as this and shocker that, and I definitely find that those are two um, kind of buzz, buzz terms that get brought up when it comes to this topic a lot. I think that, um, well, so, the, so, so just in case some listeners don't know the SOAS, the SOAS is, uh, it's a, a large, we have two of them, one on either side, and it's a muscle that um, lies deep in the abdomen behind our internal organs. It sits and runs all down the lumbar, the front of the lumbar spine. And then it crosses the hip joints and it attaches to the upper inner thigh. So it's like kind of a spinal muscle and a hip muscle because it it uh, is attached through this throughout the lower part of the spine and then it crosses the hip. And the psoas has also been this muscle that gets pulled out often and a lot of um, ideas about about these types of things. And would you say it, the psoas is a magic muscle? I would a hundred percent say the psoas is a ma- in quote magic muscle. Yes, it's a buzzed term muscle. It's uh, it's blamed for so many things. Like it's blamed to be this repository of emotions and stress, and I don't even know what else. But then it's also linked on a more kind of um, on a more bio level. It's it's claimed to be this uh, magical muscle that can cause a lot of pain in the body, like create back pain and hip pain, and it gets blamed for that. And it's blamed often as being tight, like you have a tight psoas and that that's a problem. And they're just, it gets really beat up. In and our, it needs in our, to be released. And it needs to be released. Exactly. And there are all the, there's these psoas release techniques that are taught that are really, that are really common. And, um, I think the yoga and also just therapeutic worlds in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think too, that other ideas get tied into this notion of, um, emotions in the hips, which is just this idea, ideas that, emotions in our bodies can become like blocked or trapped. This is some of the languaging that I tend to see out there. Like um, emotions can get blocked or trapped in and then buried and stored in the body. And the number one place, at least in my experience, that we tend to hear that that emotions get blocked and trapped is the hips. But other um, narratives say that emotions can be stored just in the body in general just like somewhere in the body. So there, there's some talk about it just being somewhere in the body as, as like the, a whole body. Like it could be in the shoulder or in the back. But for but some you don't reason, hear, you don't hear like emotions are stored in the shoulder. No, you don't. You don't. Uh, Why not? No, nobody talks about that. Well, that, and that's that was a, a question. That seems like a big deal to me and more people should be talking about it. <laughs> emotions in the shoulder. Exactly. Yeah. In your elbow. In your ankle. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so one of the things I read in some of these articles that I shared with you when I was researching, like, what people say, like, where the explanatory model is about about this, uh, one of the ideas was that, and it's just this loose logic that doesn't, to me, it doesn't really um, boil down to making, making sense, like, like, scientifically, but it's this idea that when people go through stress, they, uh, they move their body toward, like, the fetal position. Right. You know, like curled up, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, like like you're curled up, so you, you would like hug your knees toward your chest or at least move toward... If you're standing, you can't fully fetal, go, go into a fetal position, but you would still move toward that direction. Right? Uh, I don't know if you... I think you read that in some of the Yeah, articles. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And and so uh, the idea is just because we move toward this fetal position when we're stressed or when we're afraid or when something bad is happening, um, and then then built on top of that assumption is this claim that the psoas is the major or the main muscle that does that because it crosses the hips or whatever, the front of the hips. So it all goes back to the psoas. My question is, well, isn't a fetal position like a whole body position? Like the psoas isn't the only muscle that's involved in moving yourself toward a fetal position, right? Like your whole spine rounds and flexes so your abdominals are working. You hug your shoulders in, so that's shoulders like you just mentioned a moment ago. Um, you know, it's just like, it's a whole body thing. Like why does it, why, why does the psoas get pulled out as this magical muscle? Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Yeah. So, so the, that was the, that was what I was searching for, like a better explanation of, okay, if you're stressed, if you're, Mm -hmm. uh, emotional and that emotion is triggering a fetal response where you're curling Mm -hmm. in, Mm -hmm. but then still why just the hip? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a whole body, right? Yeah. I see that there's deep hip flexion Mm -hmm. in the fetal position, fetal. there's also deep knee, fl- neck, knee flexion and neck flexion. And, and there's neck flexion, yeah. Global flexion. So That's why right. Exactly. Um, and I, I don't know. Like maybe it's just, maybe it's that emphasis on the psoas. I think I'm kind of coming to that a little bit as a suggestion here, just that it get, the psoas does get pulled out as such a magic muscle. The psoas is located very centrally in the body, if you think about it, like from top to bottom. And for some reason, we have this bias that because something's in the center, it must therefore be more magical or more important or more meaningful. Um, maybe it's, it's deeper that. like the emotions. It's de- <laughs> exactly. It's a deep muscle. And that, again, these ideas, like what, so a superficial muscle can't be important and a superficial muscle couldn't hold emotions. I mean, when I had heard, so I, I've heard this emotions and hips stored um, in hips claim forever in the yoga world. And as we know, I've been in the yoga world for a very long time. I didn't start learning about the psoas claim until more recently, at least for mm. me. So it's that like can... a, it's like a count, uh, post hoc reasoning. <laughs> so, so the, the, so the emotions are stored in your hips claim was around first and then the psoas thing got looped into it That's when we really realized funny. that the psoas was a magic muscle more recently. Uh, okay, well, you could that that is one plausible idea. But I was gonna. I I think the psoas claim has actually been around for a long time. Okay, uh, I, it's just my my own. I hadn't tuned in my yoga experience earlier on. I was really I was just doing yoga and I wasn't tuned into these other fields. But at some point, I started. Um, you know, I did this like whole course on alignment and posture that things I've moved on from drastically now but in that course was kind of the first time that I learned that the psoas could be this like problematic muscle in the body and needed to really be pulled out and treated 
um, separately or, or specially. So it, all I was going to say was that previous to that point, to my tuning into the psoas as being this, um, this big source of our problems, when I would hear that emotions were stored in your hips, I thought of it as more like the glutes and like the back and the side of the hips and the hips that actually, the part of the hip that gets stretched when you do pigeon pose, for example. Yeah. Oh, good point. Right, right, which is like, that's the pose that's the classic, like that. That's the hip, hip opener. opener. That's the one oh, that's supposed to release so, the emotions. So the psoas doesn't even matter anymore. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I guess the psoas is a little stretched in the back leg in pigeon, a little. Oh, but people don't really think true, about but that. But you're, th you're, you're thinking about releasing the mo emotions from that front hip. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't that a funny, like, that logic there? Yeah, like everybody talks about the or a lot of people do at least, but like in pigeon, which is the classic hip opener that releases the emotion, you're stretching the back of the of that front hip that's in the pigeon leg. Yeah, so you're not like like a, a good uh, anterior hip opener f for the hip flexors, including the psoas, would be like a crescent lunge, right? That's right. That's but right. that's for not, the back leg. Yeah, uh, right. We're not talking about that being the hip opener that's going to release these stored emotions usually. No, no. And I even wrote several years ago, I have a article on my blog called, um, it's about hip openers. Oh, I think I called it. Let's forget about hip openers. And the whole point Scandalous. of it, I know the whole point of it was just to point out that in the yoga world, we talk about hip openers and the classic image is pigeon. And if it's not pigeon, then it's some pigeon-related pose, like double pigeon where you stack mm -hmm. the, or go mukhasana, like all these things, or recline pigeon on your back. Um, but my point in the article was like, that's really opening your hip only in one direction. It's really only just stretching like the back of the hip, but what about the front? What about the outer? What about the inner? Mm -hmm. And then I was just making the point that a ton of our yoga poses that we don't think of as hip openers actually do stretch the hip, like even... Warrior one and, and wheel pose, full body back when you're stretching the fronts of the hips. So totally. I was just kind of like, why do we just use this term hip opener? Well, I guess the, the emotions are only stored in the external rotators. <laughs> that you only target. Yeah, that you only target in pigeon. I just, so I guess this already is just showing me we can kind of break, break apart some of this logic and some of these ideas. Um, yeah. And another thing I want, I don't want to go into this too much here in this podcast episode, but something I wanted to bring up as far as these ideas about emotions getting blocked and stored in the body is that, uh, there is a connection with these types of beliefs to, uh, something that was really uh, a big deal in our society back in like the eight, eight, late 1980s and early 1990s. And it was this idea of repressed memories and memory recovery techniques. And so there was this uh, pervasive idea uh, among like the psychology world back then that it was really common for when people experienced uh, things that were tra traumatic in their life that they would repress those emotions uh, and like kind of block them out. And then several years later, like much later, they couldn't heal unless they uh, brought the emotions back up and like, I don't know, became one with them or accepted them. And they did that through therapy and these techniques that were called memory recovery techniques. So these were memories people couldn't remember, but the idea was, well, they did happen to you. And when if you can't remember the memory, that's just a sign that it did happen to you because tra traumatic memories get, we don't remember mm. them, they get buried in the body. So it's like this logical loop that kind of- Seems you know, plausible, it. but I, I'm no psychology expert. Right. And yeah, like on the very surface, maybe it seems, I think, and I think it informs the intuitive appeal of these, these ideas we can store emotions mm -hmm. in our body or in our hips. 
think that's part of why people think that's like a kind of makes sense. However, uh, when that happened in the late 80s and early 90s, it's this time period that's referred to these days as the memory wars. It led to just a whole bunch of problems and people re like quote remembering these things that actually turn out to be um, just imaginary pseudo memories, things that didn't happen, but were really kind of planted by the therapist unintentionally. Like it's all was well intentioned, but the therapist was basically coaxing this person to draw up these memories that probably didn't really happen. And then those those um, recovered memories ended up resulting in just people being accused of things that never happened, people losing their jobs, uh, losing their families, court cases, people going to jail. It was this whole thing. And um, there were like daycares involved. Some of our listeners may be familiar with this. There's been, a, there was a ton of coverage about it back then in the, in the mainstream media. And even today there are there, actually, I'll put a few links in the show notes if anyone wants to go into it more. But anyway, the point is that it turns out that that's, that's not really how memory works. And research in psychology actually shows that when people have a traumatic experience, in fact, those, those memories stay really vivid for people. Uh, I have read that like on a, in a rare minority occasion, maybe sometimes a memory could be repressed, but on, on the whole, the whole issue with things like, um, with conditions like PTSD, which are medical conditions diagnosed by a doctor. But part of the issue is that the, the memory of the traumatic event is so vivid and uh, it won't like leave the person. And so it's, it's not repressed. It's actually like there for them. And that is the problem. So it just seems like, it seems that research in psychology just shows that the idea of repressing memories doesn't really happen as intuitive as it may seem. And because it, it ruined so many people's lives and was this huge scandal. And uh, back in the early 90s, um, psychiatry in general and psychology in general, like mainstream psychiatry and psychology today, they do not endorse memory recovery strategies. And it's just, it's, um, it's like a debunked. The idea that we repress memories is debunked. What do you think about so, that? So you're saying that maybe yoga teachers shouldn't be trying to evoke repressed memories from people's hips? <laughs> Unless they're trained therapeutic specialists. Yes, in a one-on-one -on -one uh, contact where they're working one-on-one -on -one with a client, or as you had mentioned, maybe is a workshop designed specifically for that. Like everyone is there for that purpose, and then this yoga teacher who also a yoga teacher who is also a trained um, therapist or you know like licensed therapist or psychologist. But even then, no, no, actually, even then, no, even then, no, like mainstream. Evidence-based psychologists and therapists—they don't—they don't—they don't talk. They don't get people to recover repressed memories because that's really problematic and can be really harmful. Mm -hmm. People end yeah. up people end up believing that these things happened to them years ago that they did not. They're fabrications, but they believe them. And like memory is so. You you told me some examples before that were kind of crazy. Like people remembered being abducted by aliens. That's correct. Yes. And, and um, also people remembered like um, satanic cults and mm -hmm. I mean, crazy. Like, it, I think there, there was there were some claims that were more just like family sexual abuse. I don't mean just because uh, that is a very uh, that's a valid problem. But like right. being things that can aliens, actually happen versus yeah, think, things that the stories got impossible. crazy. And this was all like back in the 90s. But yeah, people were like um, they remember I, I listened to a recent um, I think it was a this American Life podcast on this. But they were interviewing someone who had all these memories coaxed out of her back in that era. 
And, um, and then interviewed her therapist who now has totally denounced that she, or renounced ever practicing. Like she won't practice that way anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that very well, but the therapist said that what finally did it for her, cause she was, she was a recovered memory therapist, but she finally like had a client who recalled a memory of her mom, um, taking her next door to where some, where, um, a baby had just been birthed at home and they like took the baby back to her mom's house and, um, I don't like killed it or made the person eat it. It was just something crazy. It's crazy. Jeez. I know. So these claims just got so extravagant and um, alien abductions and satanic cults that they just, they're just really, they're not things that could possibly happen. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were, there were like these daycare scandals where, where kids were being asked to remember these things that happened, but kids are so impressionable. I mean, they're like five-year-old, four-year-old kids. And yeah, no, the, Kids shouldn't even be, like, questioned in that way. That's right. Like, considered a reliable witness, like, at all. But uh, apparently they, in this group think manner, they all came to believe that these uh, terrible abuses had happened to them at their daycares. And so that's kind of what started the scandal. Anyway, I said I didn't want to go too far into this in this um, episode, but to at least, uh, just at least touch on that. This is like a, a bad thing that happened in our collective societal history, this idea and trend about repressed memories. And to me, I know it seems like when yoga teachers talk about you repress memories and you hold them in your hips, like it seems, um, like how could that be harmful? And I know on a certain level, it's just like not a big, it's not a big deal. But when we think about something like the repressed memory movement, potentially coming back, and there are other signs out there these days that it is kind of coming back with like certain popular books on the market and popular methods out there. Like, I think it's just good to raise awareness of the fact that this, this actually happened in our past and um, evidence-based psychiatry and psychology doesn't support such tactics. We'll put links about this in the show notes. Yeah, it's, um, it's good to remember what happened historically so we don't repeat the same mistakes. That's exactly right. Isn't that one of the reasons why studying history is important? That's exactly one of the reasons why studying history is important. Yeah. So I think it's a fascinating story, uh, but we don't need to keep talking about it now because we have other things to talk about. Yeah. On, um, so let, let's talk meets. about um, why why some, what, well, we, we've touched on this, but what grains of truth does storing emotions in the hips have? Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Hopefully you can get a sense from this conversation about the hips and emotions that Travis and I both value using science and critical thinking skills in our approach to yoga, movement, and the body. We utilize these same principles in our Strength for Yoga remote group training offering, which is a monthly strength program we created to support and empower yogis in building strength to support their yoga practice and their whole life in general. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program. You can learn more and sign up on my website, jennyrollings.com, and the link is in the show notes. And now back to our episode on whether or not we store emotions in our hips. We, we've touched on this, but what grains of truth does storing emotions in the hips have? Yeah, like, like, like why? Yeah. What? Where is where is the plausibility? That's a really good question. One thing I think is that um, 
people may feel good after they stretch their hips in a quote hip opener. Um, maybe partly due to placebo. <laughs> Meaning mm -hmm. if, if your yoga teacher is telling you that like this pose is going to release these, this negative energy that you pent up and they tell you that and you believe that, then it may be the case that you do pigeon and you, you're like kind of guided to, to feel better. And we know that our brain has direct control over how we feel in our body. So if it believes that something like that happened from a hip opener, maybe you literally will feel good. In which case mm -hmm. placebo is one possible, one possible reason. I guess that's more of an explanation and not, yeah, yeah. A little bit of a great yeah, tree uh, of how that could be. Yeah, that makes sense to me. What else? Well, to me, like when I look at it, the, what I see is that movement and physical activity can evoke emotion. And, mm -hmm. and like you said, if we're made to focus on the hips, then mm -hmm. we can convince ourselves that the emotions that we're feeling during this movement practice are emanating from the hips. Um, but in reality, it just, way. yeah, I think that there is, there's certainly a relationship between emotions and movement, For but sure. I don't, I really don't see the, the, the reason for isolating the focus to the hips because it's just like mo moving your body evokes emotion. Right. Right. Like in general, now, like you said, the, the hip, hip stretches and hip openers can be very intense. Yes. Uh, and those, those are areas that people frequently experience as tight. That's so, right. so maybe that's part of it is that if you're, if you're going into a yoga class feeling emotional, stressed, whatever, maybe that stress and emotion is manifesting as tightness. And I don't, I don't know that there's research showing like, oh, the, the more stressed you are, the, the tighter you perceive your body. But suppose that is the case, then, well, we know that people tend to experience tightness in their hips. Well, if their global tightness perception is increased, then they might feel that in their hips. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. If the hips is, are an area where, where many people lack, I don't know, mobility or flexibility. And yeah. So, so actually there, there's two things, right? There's the perception of tightness and then there's the objective measurement mm -hmm. of tightness. Of range, and it of, is, of range of motion. Yeah. And it, so it's likely the case that if you are stressed or um, just not relaxed, then your mm -hmm. range of motion is going to be less than if you were relaxed. Like if you go into uh, receive manual therapy and you are just a, a ball of stress and the, <laughs> the therapist is trying to stretch you passively, you're not going right. to stretch as far and they might tell you to relax yeah. and breathe and whatever. So I, I I do see the relationship between stress and the either the perce perception or reality of tightness or range of motion. And maybe that manifests in the hips because the hips tends to be a place where people perceive the most tightness in their body that, or, um, or actually have the most tightness in their body. That logic, that, that yeah, I can totally see what you're saying there. And it, I think it is true that when people are more amped up or when their sympathetic nervous system is more um, 
upregulated that in general, I think we know, yeah, that range of motion can be limited. And, and that's why like um, in stretching research and things, when they're trying to test like for range of motion, they'll often put um, EMG sensors on people to ensure that their muscles are actually relaxed before they take them into the range, the end range of motion so that they know that they're actually testing end range of motion and not just like this um, reflexive contraction. Muscle, muscle. guarding. Muscle guarding. Or I don't. Contraction. Yeah, maybe that's connected to the stretch reflex, the myotatic reflex, where your your muscles like kind of instinctively or reflexively contract when you go into a range. Mm -hmm. um, or the yeah. what's the other one where you, if you stretch too fast, then Golgi tendon organ, like a ballistic stretch, will tend to stimulate some something's muscle spindle fibers. I think that that's My... the myotatic reflex, I think. Okay, same thing. Which Got is it. muscle spindle fibers, um, they're more in the belly of the muscle, and then the Golgi tendon organ is up in the tendon, and that's more autogenic inhibition from my understanding. Yeah. Where you can Good thing the one of us knows it's... this stuff. <laughs> well, I just made a course for my website called Structuring Science 101. Which so we'll link more... in the show notes. Okay, yeah, we can link that. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so I'm a little more in touch with, with those reflexes right now in this moment. Good, good save. <laughs> well, thanks. But yes, I believe the myotatic reflex, which is the muscle spindles in the muscle, okay. they can um, have certain thresholds where they're set, where they um, they have sensitivity thresholds, and when they when they sense tension beyond that, then that can trigger a reflexive contraction of the muscle, and that can hold you back in range of motion. Which, like I said, is why in stretching science research, they hook you up to EMGs, or they often do, to try to take that out of the equation by ensuring that there is no EMG signal to ensure that muscles are relaxed so that they're truly getting a sense of your actual end range. Because if your muscles guard um, and then you can't go any further, that doesn't necessarily mean that's how far you could really go. It's just that like you're being held, you could be held back by the contractions. But if you relaxed, you could probably go further. But I mm -hmm. would point out that with all of that, at either of those end ranges, whether it's an end range in which you're guarded and your muscles are contracting and, and kind of holding you back a little, or whether the muscles are relaxed and you can go further, in both of the end ranges of both of those stretches, you'd still feel tight at the end range, or most people mm -hmm. would. Like, yeah, yeah. The, there's your perception of it. And then if somebody is doing perform the stretch on you, they talk about different end feels. Oh, so, yeah. So like a, a firm end feel, or I forget what the alternative would be, but. Bah, squishy? Well, yeah, I don't think they use that word, but like, uh, <laughs> I think if maybe a firm end feels like a, oh, this feels like a bony block. Yeah, bone to bone. And then if squishy. it's, uh, squishy, do they really it's like they joint, joint, like, yeah. that's my impression of what I've heard. But it's like firm is bone. And then there's like where it's springy, maybe springy or yeah. to indicate that it's not bone, right? Like you're going to say that that's yeah, that you're. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Squishy? No, now that that's not the right word. Soft? I I don't know. Yeah, either. soft, soft end feel. <laughs> that sounds right. Let's go. In, with that. in in trying to test like what's holding you back in your end range, is it that bones are coming together and you literally that's your structure and you can't go further, or is it that soft tissue being stretched is what's holding you back? And then conceivably, maybe if you worked on flexibility, um, then maybe you could go further. Is that kind? Of, that's yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. But so with anyway, all of it, if, if yeah. you stretch. Um, that will have a down-regulating effect on the nervous system. Precisely. And was, you yeah. can feel more... Better. Relaxed. Better, yeah, relaxed and uh, a sense of calm uh, that you might 100%. not have gone into your practice with. And then you leave thinking, oh, 
I like got the emotions out of my hips. Great. That's so true. And so, that, uh, so uh, that, that was my, that was my question. Uh, like when, when yoga teachers say emotions are stored in the hips are, is the, then the goal is to stretch the hips, open the hips yeah. to free the emotions. They fly out then, of your body like a bird. Yeah. Like a bird. <laughs> So I'm sorry I, to interrupt I, you. I just had to say I, that. I hope that you take that sound bite. <laughs> the emotions fly out of your body like a bird. I think that's, that's, that's my, like, they're, they're like a bird in a cage, you know, like of your hip. And then you yeah. stretch and that stretch somehow is the mechanism that opens the cage. Yeah. So I'm anyway, is, that, is, the, is the goal to, to get the emotions out or is the goal to stretch for the other benefits of stretching? And then you might experience this side phenomenon of these emotions being released. So just FYI, this can happen. So if you start crying, crying during yeah. your pigeon or mm -hmm. feeling emotional, like, don't worry, that's normal because the emotions are stored in your hips. When you said don't worry or when you said this can happen, you meant you're saying that's what a yoga teacher would say. Yeah. No, so what, like, what's the... When, when we're talking about this is the goal to get the emotions out, which then maybe ties back into that potentially non-evidence-based practice yeah. of trying to get at those. Or is it just, hey, we're going to stretch the hips because it feels good and whatever other reasons you might want to stretch the hips. And by the way, you might experience this because emotions are stored in your hips. I'm really glad you asked that because I, I think that's an important distinction to make. And at least in my experience, I have heard yoga teachers teach about this in both ways. So sometimes okay. it'll just be like they're teach, they're leading the class in a pigeon and they'll be like, hey, guys, just FYI, hip, uh, you store emotions in your hips. So when you do pigeon, if you feel an emotion come up, you know, just know that that's normal. So this and again, all, all of that is not that's not evidence based or supported. But that's what says that that's one way to approach it is just like heads up, this might happen. And, you know, and even saying that, that's, of course, planting seeds in students' minds that that can happen. Yeah. Of course, yeah. it's going to help create that. But then the other approach you're saying, which is approach number two, is more that a yoga teacher uses pigeon intentionally as like a therapeutic pose for the therapeutic purpose of freeing emotions. So it's like, it's yeah. not just like, we're doing pigeon, and by the way, this might happen, but it's more like, we're doing pigeon for this therapeutic uh, intention yeah. that's what you're asking those two approaches yeah and I, I think like it's not there's not uh it's not bad to say hey you might get emotional while you're uh engaging in your movement practice that's right but but then saying specifically because emotions are stored in the hips that's where i i don't see that like it mm -hmm. could happen in any pose or posture or time 100 total I, I i totally agree and I, I would just like to suggest that that other way of presenting emotions in are in your hips um, which is like we're going to use pigeon therapeutically in class in order to free the emotions and like cause healing in, in um and like a mental health level i would suggest that i, I think that's a little out of scope for yoga right. teachers to really be doing and it's done all the time out there i've seen it a bunch but i I, um, I mean, unless a yoga teacher is also a mental health professional, 
I don't, I think it's probably out of scope to be going too much down that path. Um, but again, like we mentioned earlier, if a yoga teacher is also a mental health professional, then maybe they work one-on-one with people in a private setting and, and then it's different. But again, repressed memories, we don't, we don't want to be going back to that. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's probably a little out of scope to talk about hip openers as being inherently therapeutic in a, in a yoga class. And then if you're going to talk about the hip openers thing where you're not treating it therapeutically, but you're just like warning everybody, your emotions might fly out of your hips. So just be prepared. I also think you like a bird. That's, um, maybe that's not out of scope, but that's just not very science-based. Right. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but, but hip openers can be great. And like you said, um, anytime we stretch, in fact, we know from scientific research that static stretching does downregulate the nervous system. So if you stretch in pigeon or any other stretch, you can end up with a a more relaxed, um, state of mind. And that can be, that can be really great. I feel like as with a lot of things we tend to dissect on, on the podcast and in our work together, uh, I feel like it's often the case that these very specific claims are made, like this pose will do this, or this will have this effect. Mm. But when we step back, we kind of realize it's what seems to really be more the case is it's just more these general bigger picture. Like that's what we know, like yoga in general or any movement practice can, can put you in a better state of mind or make you feel more relaxed. But when we get down to specifics, like this pose does this, that's where it tends to maybe not be so... I don't know. Um, logical, unless we're talking about strengthening or st- or um, stretching for flexibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think it goes back to the hips being a part of the body where we feel a strong sensation, and so mm-hmm. there's uh, there's like it feel it feels right to say, oh, it I'm feeling more relaxed or more in touch with my feelings after this particular stretch, just because. There, I perceived a, a sensation in that pose um, more so than mm-hmm. any other. So I'm going to tie it back to that when it's exactly. probably more the the more global L right. like aspect of engaging in your movement practice. Totally. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Or, or just a, a non non specific effect non-specific that's not directly effects. tied to putting your hip into. Internal external rotation. rotation. Oh, internal, well, for yeah. <laughs> external rotation yeah. and flexion, and um, usually abduction, abduction, usually, at least a little bit, taking the leg out. Flexion, abduction, that's external it. rotation. That's the pigeon leg hip. And yeah. that's the special position we need to unlock the caged birds of emotion. Um, another question I had we've, we touched on, so I think there are two terms. Um, pertinent to this conversation that tend to be used a lot, but without clear definitions. And one of them we already talked about, which is tight, the term tight, and how that term in general, like we we tend to throw it around a lot, but it doesn't actually have one clear meaning. So unless we're clearly defining it, conversations can get confusing. And uh, the other term is just is purely the term release. Like Mm -hmm. when we're talking about releasing emotions or uh, releases that happen in our yoga practice or from manual therapy or uh, massage, things like that. Like um, I think people throw the word release around a lot without necessarily clearly defining it. Uh, Like how do you, how do you hear the word release used in a way that maybe seems common, but when you really think about it, it's like, well, what do they mean? 
Well, they're often talking about trigger points oh, or knots totally. or, or a- tight, tight. Yeah, there's another one. Tight <laughs> muscles or short muscles or overactive muscles. Oh my God, those are all, three different you know, possibilities. Yeah, all, yeah, all different ways of saying the same thing. And so the the idea is we need to release these tissues mm-hmm. or structures to get the knot out or remove the trigger point or lengthen the muscle mm-hmm. or make it less overactive. I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and the, like, none of that has been very well validated from a scientific standpoint. It, right. Like we can't even identify knots or trigger points with any sort of accuracy. Right. Like you can feel with, if you're a manual therapist or even on yourself, like you can feel tight spots in people's muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, so then anyway, the, but, but it's hard to validate those with any sort of uh, measurement in a lab. But anyway, then the, the release idea is, okay, we're going to either stretch or we're going to apply pressure. Through or, massage or something. Yep. Or rolling yeah, on balls. Mm-hmm. Massage or, or instrument assisted soft tissue. What's Mobilization? the Mobilization? I, Mobilization? Yeah. I-A-S-T-M. <laughs> I-A-S-T-M, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's so, like foam and rollers so, and therapy balls. Yep. Or, I mean, um, as examples. Or therapy canes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And those metal scrapey things they use in physical therapy, the Graston. Yep. yep Is that yep. another example? Yep. So, so what are we doing so with those tools? What's the idea? We're trying to apply pressure to release those, whatever they are, trigger points, <laughs> adhesions, uh, knots. And you just can't do that. You can't do you just, that. You just can't. It takes surgery. You can, stre- like... you can, you can uh, yeah, you can stretch things and you can apply pressure mm-hmm. to things and you can, they can go from feeling tender or feeling tight to not anymore but that's a central nervous system Mm -hmm. phenomenon that's not a physiological difference that's occurring in the muscle like a structural change it's not a structural change it's like your nervous system (laughs) so it's your perception a hundred percent yeah it's changing which is fine but you're not releasing anything that's right and, and and again, the whole idea of like what is, what is um, what is meant by release? Like you're breaking up that knot, or the adhesion, or um, or la- or loosening things, or making them like you said longer. Like those are all possibilities for what one could mean by release. What about with the psoas? Just this. That's not well, so much. So that's the craziest one because it's <laughs> so deep that you actually cannot access it externally. That's right. So you're applying pressure through more muscle, like tons of muscles above and the abdominal viscera. Mm -hmm. So maybe indirectly you can put pressure through all of those things to get to the psoas, but you're really people who say I'm releasing the psoas or doing anything of the sort. You're probably targeting the rectus femoris, which is the quadriceps muscle that flexes the hip. That's more superficial. Uh, right. you could that you could actually get like access to manually yeah yeah 
That's so true. I have seen, I don't know if you've um, been taught so like so as quote release techniques that are not manual therapy, but it's more like a position, like you put your body in a position and you hold it there and then that's said to be a psoas release. Um, one example of this that I've experienced is um, like you lie on your back and you take your feet up like on a chair. And this is sometimes called, you may have heard it called, or our listeners may have heard it called um, constructive rest. Have you heard that term, Travis, constructive rest, mm -hmm. or do you not know what I'm talking about? I think it's common in like um, somatics-based practices and that the, um, that that side of things. But you lie on your back. This is one of the, there are other psoas releases too, but you lie on your back basically and your knees are bent at like 90 degrees and your feet are elevated like on a chair and you just lie there and breathe. And that's supposed to release your psoas. Another one I learned when I did that like. How? <laughs> I think in that sense they mean release, I think. I think they mean it by relax. Like in that sense, it's like it's okay. tension and by lying there, it relaxes. Because remember, release can mean so many things like break oh, up, yeah. break up tissue or does it just mean relax a muscle that's contracted? But I think Got that's it. what it means there. But again, to me, that's just, again, it's over, overly specific. Like if anyone right. lies there and puts their feet up, they're going to relax. They're going to downregulate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there, another psoas release one that I've been taught is... Um, uh, so it's supported bridge pose. It's like a variation. Like you lie on your back, your knees are bent and your feet are flat. So I think that's called hook line position. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you would take like a yoga block or a bolster under your hips to elevate. But then it's not just that. It's a little more specific because these things always have to be specific where you actually scoot the block further toward your feet than, than you, you normally would put it there so that your pelvis tilts backwards into this uh, passive supported posterior tilt. So it's like this very specific position you need to go in and then you hold that for a long time. And that's also supposed to be a psoas release. I was taught this one in the alignment, quote alignment training that I did. Does that even, let's forget about releasing, but does that even put tension on the psoas? Does that stretch? Well, does that position stretch it? I don't think constructive rest stretches it either. If you think about. No, right. So I think it's, uh, it's just relaxing. I think it's just relaxing. Okay. That's the other thing. So I took this other, I've taken so many of these random three. Because, three just because posterior letters. tilt is hip flexion. No, sorry. Posterior tilt is hip extension. Yeah, it's hip extension. Okay. And so with the it, psoas, it, yeah. It actually, we don't have to get into it. It's actual actions, I think, are contested a little. Like, does it anteriorly tilt the pelvis? Does it posteriorly tilt? Oh. Anyway, <laughs> but I think this, this psoas release I'm describing was more about just like a positional relaxation. Mm -hmm. But I took this other uh, training for, you know, it was for ther uh, pr therapy professionals, which I, I am not, but, um, you know, it was like chiropractors and physical therapists, but also personal trainers and some movement professionals. That's why I was there. And they taught us this whole system where uh, if someone, you know, has pain or quote dysfunction that we can somehow identify as the the person facilitating this, we, we do manual muscle testing, first of all, to test and find out what the dysfunction is, which manual muscle testing we know is actually not evidence-based either, but a lot of people do it. And then once you find out like where the um, dysfunction is, like what muscle isn't firing or whatever, whatever the problem is, then you do a release, a quote release. And it was just so glossed over. It was just like, you can do whatever release you want to do. If you're a massage therapist, then you would do a manual release. If you're a movement teacher, you would give them a stretch. This was the, the suggestion, like just have them stretch and that'll be a release. So it's like you either release it manually or you do a stretch. 
And I was too shy at the, and this was years ago, but even then, I mean, the fact I was even in that training shows me I was in a different paradigm and how I saw the body to even have paid to take that training. But still, even then I was like, how are we so sure that just a stretch causes a release of this like supposedly dysfunctional muscle? And I should have asked, but I didn't ask. I just kind of went with it. <laughs> no, no good could come of that conversation in a course oh, like I that. if I asked. Yeah. I see what you're saying. They would, you would just be, be shunned. Like, yeah. And then I would look like the bad guy for, for questioning. Questioning. Yeah. They have too much based on it needing to be that way. It's like their certification and it's that three letter name of their course. And if it wasn't that way, it would have to change everything. And <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I do want, I mean, this is another thing actually I'll say it's getting a little off of just the emotions in your hips. But there's a very widespread narrative in the yoga world that anytime you stretch anything, you've released it. So it's like stretch your hamstrings, you released them. You know? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. And um, as we know, a lot of times when people go into end range, their muscles actually start contracting because of that myotatic stretch reflex. So if by release, if what you mean is like relax, that's not necessarily happening for many people. And if by release, you, I don't even know, like, what does it even mean? And then, of course, there's the term myofascial, myofascial release, which is very popular in the yoga world. Like, right. I teach well, myofascial and, release. Yeah. I've, I have it's balls. It's popular and everywhere. And yes, it's totally. Not, it's, it's popular everywhere. Not, it's a, a widely recognized term, SMR, self-myofascial release. Self-myofascial release, yeah. But it's not actually probably what's happening. So our friend Chris, who's a physical mm -hmm. therapist and... Wrote he wrote a great for, article. Yeah, on your blog, we'll, all we'll about link to it. the four D. Well, I forget what it was called. I, it I was, think it was. The, oh, I think we gave it the. He wanted to call it something else, and we changed the title. It's yeah, called, we made it a little bit more flashy. Just flash to get people to actually read it. It was called "Self Myofascial Release." What does it do, and what doesn't it do? Yeah, right. That's. I'm pretty sure that's what it was called. Maybe I think I, I wanted to call it something even more. More? What do you think uh, you wanted to call? What do you think it was called? I've, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, uh, the point is that he, he has termed it pressure therapy yeah, instead like of self-myofascial release for because you're not just describing what you're doing more so than what is maybe or this, probably this not proposed, happening. This implausible mechanism of like yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So, um, And he has like a whole system. He's like reframed. He, he's a fan of myofascial release. And I guess I just want to make sure I point that out, that as much as we're picking apart the term release and suggesting it doesn't mean what it says, that doesn't mean that myofascial release and self-myofascial release techniques aren't helpful. And like Chris totally uses them all the time, right? But he uses them in from an evidence-based perspective where he's thinking of it as just, pre like you said, pressure therapy, which that's ultimately kind of what it is, right? Absolutely. So we'll link to his article in the show notes. And uh, a couple years before we had him write that, asked him to write that article for my blog, I had written a blog post that is one of still one of the most popular on my blog. That had a catchy title too, and I know that's partly why um, it's been so popular. But it's called "Fascia Myths and Fascia Facts," and uh, that's also it's similar. Like Chris does a much more expansive and sophisticated, and it was a couple years later, so. Um, his article is probably more like up to date, but mine was also in the similar vein. Like, what are we, what are we actually doing when, when we're rolling on massage balls in, in a yoga class, like when we're rolling on therapy balls or, or foam rolling there's, that's another implement that's often used. Like, um, 
And not that those things aren't, aren't uh, valuable, but when we understand a little more about what mechanisms might be more plausible and which are less, if we understand more about the mechanism for why and how they work, we can use them more effectively uh, than just trying to use them with these other ideas that, that aren't really justified, I guess. So, so do you regret throwing all of yours out? <laughs> You're, okay, okay, so the reason you're asking me that... <laughs> Is that earlier on in my yoga teaching career, I taught a class called, what was it called? Oh, oh, total, it was called Total Alignment Reset, which I think you could tell just from the name is not a type of class I would teach today. It was all about how people use their bodies um, dysfunctionally in modern society, and we sit all the time and we're in bad posture, and we need to reset our alignment back to optimal alignment. That's what it was all about. And we would use massage balls. I ordered a whole bunch of them, the little pinky balls, you know, that you can get on Amazon or in toy stores. Uh, and we'd use those to like roll out. I would, I would talk about how they would, um, uh, you know, hydrate our fascia and break down adhesions and how they were doing, making these structural changes in our body. Cause that's what I had been taught. That's what the trainings I had taken at the time had told me. So I thought that's what I thought our, everyone's fascia was unhealthy and we made it healthy through rolling. But, uh, so then when I, once I started to learn more and realized that whole narrative was just really outdated and unsupported, I, of course there's pendulums, right? And they can swing. And I was like, I don't need these balls in my life. And I gave them all away and we moved to Chicago. I, I was, I think I gave them away because I was just like, I don't want to drag these with me from Santa Barbara to Chicago. Like, why do I need all these balls? Um, yeah, I don't have them anymore, but I do. I do recognize that they can still be super useful, but just under a different narrative and with a different explanatory model. So do I regret, you're asking, do I regret giving them away? <laughs> well, I, there was obviously a, you were moving and you didn't want to mm -hmm. lug them around with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. It, so I guess I don't. Logistical justification. And you could, <laughs> if you wanted to buy new pinky balls, They're you could buy new pinky balls. Like but you $5 haven't, for two. But yeah, I haven't. You haven't yeah, needed, you're right. You haven't needed them. You're right, actually. You're right. I haven't. We have some tennis balls here because of the dogs. And I never go to use them, like for rolling. Because a lot of people will roll on a tennis ball or like a lacrosse ball if they don't have an official. <laughs> well, not that peaky mm -hmm. balls are official massage therapy balls either. They're not. But anyway, you're totally right. It's been years and I still have balls in my life, but I never roll on them. I'm just personally not, like I don't feel the need. Um, but other people love it. Other people love it. And it's obviously like, like Chris is um, a doctor of physical therapy and he prescribes and suggests that people use them. He has like really good movements to suggest for them. Yeah. So I, I think the, the point is probably do, do it if it feels good, but don't feel like you have to do it because if you don't do it, then your fascia is going to become brit brittle is like a word I used to use. Yeah. yeah explode is a great word. Uh, totally. I think that's a perfect way to put it as with a lot of, as with a lot of things, um, pigeon pose, if you like it, do it, but don't necessarily think that it's like releasing emotions. Like don't do it for that reason, but if it feels good, do it. Pigeon <laughs> is great. I was actually thinking that we could do a podcast episode on pigeon pose sometime just cause that Ooh. pose is like, it's a contract. Like there's a lot of controversy around that pose in general. I'm going to put it on the yeah. list. If you put like it that on idea. the list, I love um, it. <laughs> Travis, did you have any other like final thoughts you wanted to share about exercise and how we can experience our bodies um, and our emotions in response to exercise? 
Yeah. So I, I just want to point out that there is a strong subjective or emotional aspect when it comes to exercise. So it's not just as we're saying emotions aren't stored in your hips doesn't mean that there is no relationship between emotions and exercise. So totally. there are certainly sensations that we feel when we are exercising. Um, we can feel like we're exerting our bodies uh, during like a, a vigorous flow or an intense pose. Uh, and we can feel our heart rate increasing. We can mm -hmm. feel our breathing rate increasing. We can feel our muscles working, of course. And then afterwards, when we relax from those things, we can feel a sense of calm. Um, we can feel maybe reduced anxiety that we maybe brought onto the mat. And yeah. that's just, it's not because emotions are stored in our hips. It's just because uh, <laughs> moving and engaging in physical activity does create, does elicit emotions. And we, we might also yeah. even feel other emotions. We might feel... Like after, so during the fact we're feeling those things after the fact, we might feel proud of ourselves mm -hmm. for like mm -hmm. having done the practice. Maybe we didn't feel like doing it. We did it anyway, or we might feel proud because we were able to hold our handstand for longer yeah. or touch our toes or, or whatever. Um, so, so there's, there's got it like pr pride, pride is in, an emotion. Yeah. And, and in uh, like pushing our own limits and we might even feel uh like long after the fact maybe we like a, a yoga class that we used to take um we might feel nostalgic about it oh yeah um, oh, that's a we good might one. like have very fond memories of either the teacher or the community or the environment or just remembering how we felt during that experience uh, like years after the fact so That's all so of true. these things are, are, are things that we can feel from exercise and they're not just stored in the hips because you could not do any hip openers and still ex experience those sensations, right? Totally. Um, it doesn't have to be that specific. Yeah. So, so there are many, many, and many of those things draw us to doing exercise, right? Uh, yeah. Like the the yeah. getting getting better at something um feeling mastery and control over our bodies uh, taking time away from our day-to-day -day and just losing ourselves in our movement practice and forgetting our day-to-day -day struggles uh Absolutely. feeling more confident in our bodies as yeah, a result a of you know of that we'll mastery or of getting mm -hmm. stronger yeah like showing ourselves what we're capable of or maybe even uh, like it's called type two fun where it's not really like, maybe you don't love actual practice that you're doing. Maybe it's hard or maybe you like, you don't love whatever it is, but you know, it's good for you. And so mm -hmm. afterwards you can look back on it. It's, it wasn't fun in the moment, like a hot yoga class for me. Like I did <laughs> hot yoga once. It wasn't fun in the moment, uh, but in retrospect, like it was kind of cool. I don't, I don't feel the need to do it again, but I'm glad I did it. Um, I'm like, totally. it was a, a bucket list thing for me and, and to that. anybody who likes hot yoga, like more power to you. Keep doing it. Right. It um, might be fun for, but all, all those things, it. the sense of, yeah, the sense of community and connection that you make with other people, the social aspects, sure. um, that just, feeds into just emotions. being able to, yeah, choose the type of movement that you're doing, um, and not being forced to 
you know, as a kid, like you're in PE class and they're making you do things. And now as an adult, you're like, oh, I'm deciding to go to this yoga class. Gives you a sense of, you know, free will or empowerment, whatever. So all of those totally. things are emotions that we can feel about like door before, during, after about our movement practice. And those are perfectly valid. They're just not stored in the hips. <laughs> I love, thank you so much for making that broader point. Clearly exercise and, and a structured movement practice and a yoga practice and emotions, they can absolutely be connected and exercise can elicit emotions. Uh, but it's just, it's not these ideas, just like you said of emotions stored in the hips. Um, yeah, that makes, I think that's a really good, like positive way to take a step back and, and think about it. It's never, you know, just black or white. Yeah, it's all these conversations are always. Yeah. Nuanced. I wouldn't want someone walking away from this and being like, oh, there's no emotional or subjective component of exercise. It's just, or, or yoga. Mm. It's just, oh, we do, we do our practice and then we get these objective benefits and that's it. It's like, no, this is absolutely a subjective experience and, and there are emotions associated with it. It's 100%. just not a different framework for it. Yeah. It's just not storing emotions in the hips. Exactly. I feel like we've done a really nice uh, and thorough job of covering this topic up to this point. Do you think we kind of hit on most of the things we wanted to talk about today? I think so. As long as people remember that when you do a hip opener, your emotions fly out of your hips like birds, then I think we've covered it. <laughs> That's the message we want to leave everyone with. You or somebody. Uh, okay, we'll just make sure everyone leaves with, <laughs> leaves with that. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I feel really lucky to get to talk to you about this stuff because oh, you just, you want, uh, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. I, I feel like I learned a lot. So oh, the feeling's mutual. Well, me too. Me too. And I hope our listeners did as well. And we'd love to hear what people think of this episode, but we hope yeah, it's if, helpful. If we're, if we're wrong, let us know. <laughs> yeah, we're totally open. So thank you so much, Travis. Thanks, Jenny. And that wraps up our look at whether or not we store emotions in our hips. Remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program. And the link to that is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. And if you enjoyed this discussion, we would so appreciate your support if you had time to subscribe to this podcast and to leave us a rating or a review. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon.